Hi, it's uh, Ainon uh, and Rick. And today we're going to be talking to Carl um, a bit about Hong Kong and what's going on there. Uh, Carl, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you for thank you again for welcoming me to the show. Um, I am Carl Za. I I was born and grew up in China originally until I was 13 years old, and then I came to United States in 1990. Um, I have been living in U.S. for about 29 years, and and recently I'm just uh, moved to Asia. I'm currently on Bali, Indonesia, and uh, I was educated in U.S. through you know from high school through college. I went to Caltech. Um, and graduated from there. And my major was uh, electrical engineering. So uh, my <laughs> profession was software engineering, but you know my my passion has always been history, um, geopolitics, and and China. China is my biggest passion. I mean, I, I, I actually run a website called, uh, not a website, but a podcast called the Silk and Steel Podcast. Um, basically focus on everything on China, the culture, history, current events, whatnot. And, you know, Hong Kong currently is on everybody's radar. So that's an event I have been following very closely. And uh, I guess that's why um, you guys get in touch with me, right? Yes. Well, I wanted somebody from, you know, China or Hong Kong to to talk about what's going on in Hong Kong because here in the West, the media is always pro the protesters, but it's there is a motive. Anytime there's pro something on Western media, there's a motive behind it, you know? So, yes. um would you like to talk about what's going on in Hong Kong with the protesters and who is funding the protesters and what do they want? Everything. Sure. I mean, um, now the Hong Kong protests have been going on for 15 weeks. And the main protest started in June. Ostensibly, it's about uh, a new legislation was introduced uh, to the Hong Kong legislature called the extradition bill, which would cover uh, extradition treaty between Hong Kong uh, Taiwan, Macau, and mainland China. The the reason for it is because Hong Kong, Hong Kong actually have extradition treaty with the rest of the world, including United States. Um, you know, remember Edward Snowden first fled to Hong Kong, but he had to flee again because he was afraid that he might be extradited back to the United States. So Hong Kong does have an extradition treaty with U.S., but it does not have one with mainland China. And this is an artifact of the Cold War because, as we all know, uh, Hong Kong used to be a, a British colony. Um, so in 1840, uh, you know, Britain fought opium war against China. And as a result of that, uh, Britain forcibly detached Hong Kong from China and made it its uh, crown colony. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, Britain fought China in two opium wars, the first and the second opium war. So for the after the first opium war, Britain received Hong Kong Island. After the second opium war, Britain received 
uh, Guilong Peninsula, which is uh, this peninsula just opposite of Hong Kong Island. Now today, the Hong Kong Island and the Guilong Peninsula consist of the urban core of Hong Kong. And then in 1894, 95, after the first Sino-Japanese War, in which a newly industrialized Japan defeated China, uh, really exposed uh, the Chinese weakness, so invited all the Western imperialist power to move in again. Um, that's when Britain took the opportunity to carve off another piece of territory from China, this time called New Territory, which is this uh, largest land in Hong Kong that's just juts just off the mainland. And, and this piece of land was leased for 99 years. So it was due, the lease was due to expire in 1997. And then in 1980s, the Thatcher government uh, actually went to China wanting to renew the lease. And, and then the spring leader of China, Deng Xiaoping said no. Uh, and, and Thatcher actually went to her military brass and asked them to draft a, a defense plan to defend Hong Kong. Um, so th this was around the time when UK just fought the Falkland War and won. So, you know, Thatcher was pretty high on, on her horse about <laughs> using Britain's military power. But the, the British military brass had to set her down and told her, Ma'am, uh, that's impossible. You know, Hong Kong depending on its drinking water from mainland China, and and it's just impossible to defend against attack from the mainland. So Thatcher was forced to go back to the negotiation table with the Chinese central government, and as a result of which, in 1984, UK and China issue what's called the the Sino-British Joint Declaration which states that Hong Kong will be returned to China in 1997. All of it, Hong Kong Island, Guilong Peninsula, New Territory, everything will be returned to China. And for its part, the Chinese central government promised to do not disturb the way of life in Hong Kong. So under a formulation of one country, two systems. So chi Chinese central government promised you will not impose a communist or socialist system on Hong Kong. Hong Kong can, can keep its free willing capitalism, uh, its government system, uh, it's a British, British common law, everything as is. So after the 1984 uh, joint declaration was declared, that's when Britain decided to introduce limited form of democracy to Hong Kong. So for about 150 years, um, <clears throat> Britain did not have introduced any form of democracy to Hong Kong. So only after they agreed to return the island to the territory to China, they uh, decided to introduce a limited form of democracy uh, it's not one man, one vote, but uh, they have this what's called the constituency system where they set up uh, a block of votes for, say, business sector, uh, um, you know, some block of votes for, for lawyers and doctors, so on and so forth. And, and what basically happened is that the Brit 
Brit British government, which used to rule Hong Kong through its colonial governor central from Britain, has co-opted the local elite to rule Hong Kong. And, and China um, <clears throat> went through its own uh, traumatic event in 1989, the Tiananmen Square student protests, and after which China was diplomatically isolated and and so there was uh, also the, it, it caused um, you know people in Hong Kong were deeply unsettled. <clears throat> so so Beijing was afraid that uh, the handover in 1997 will set off a capital flight because this was a time when a lot of the Hong Kong middle class and and above and rich people start going to. Uh, British Columbia uh, going to Vancouver buying up real estate because they're um, uh, they're British uh, what's called BNO like uh, British Overseas National they don't they actually don't have a rights to to live in Britain but you know it's easier for them to move to for of uh, Commonwealth countries like Canada or Australia so many Hong Kongers were going to Canada, buying up uh, apartment <coughs> buildings, um, you know, getting their Canadian passport or green card in an effort, you know, for exit just in case. And and so so Beijing, in effort to prevent capital flight, they agreed to keep the British colonial structure in Hong Kong intact. Right, the, with its own separate uh, court, with its own separate courts, the the Hong Kong legislature, everything. <clears throat> but then in 1994, just just three years before the handover, the last uh, British colonial governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, he decided to make a legacy for himself by uh, further expanding. Uh, further expanding the election system in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, I, for one, I support universal suffrage. I, I believe Hong Kong people deserve universal suffrage. And you can't really argue against expanding of electoral rights. But <clears throat> I just like to point out that <laughs> the reason Chris Patton did it was very specific. <laughs> he did it to make a name for himself, to... to um, uh, put uh, you know put something on his legacy and also to spite Beijing because this is 1994 you know just a couple years after the collapse of Soviet Union and and collapse of communism in most of Eastern Europe Beijing Hong, China was one of the last communist country that that was still standing and, and many people actually speculated that it might not last. In fact, we have uh, Mr. Gordon Chan, uh, America's favorite uh, China expert, who who wrote a book in 2001 called "The Calming Collapse of China." That, that's like 18 years ago. So back then, many people believed that you know China Chinese government, its form of governors might not last. So Chris Patton took this opportunity to expand the electoral reform, um, and uh, Hong Kong had its. Uh, expanding election in 1995 but this this new arrangement upset Beijing because uh, the Chinese government thought it had already had a deal with Britain 
in, back in 1984 that you know you will preserve the British system as is, has handover, and they felt suddenly the <clears throat> the colonial governor is changing the rule of the game. You know, they were Beijing were okay with the you know the limited form of democracy that Hong Kong already has after 1984, but they were ready for the new um, expanded electoral reform introduced by Chris Patton. So they raised their objection, and after 1997, the last uh, <clears throat> the last uh, Hong Kong legislature that was elected in 1995, two years prior, was dismissed replaced with a provisional uh, legislature. And in 1998, the following year, a new election was held under the pre-1994 election law. So, so what we have in Hong Kong is basically the same set of electoral rules that persisted in the ter territory um, since 1980s. Or, you know, since when, when the Britain first introduced a limited electoral reform, and and that that election is for the Hong Kong legislature, right? And and of course the the Hong Kong also to replace the Hong Kong colonial governor, a position was created called the Hong Kong chief executive, uh, just like the colonial governor was appointed by Britain, the chief. Hong Kong chief executive uh, needs approval from Beijing, right? So everything overall, um, you know, one country, two system was functioning in Hong Kong with Beijing play, played more or less a hand, hands-off approach. So, uh, you know, Hong Kong does not have the great firewall, for example. You know, everybody can freely get on the internet outside and Hong Kong followed its own set of rules, which meant it did not have a tradition treaty with mainland China because during the Cold War period, um, you know, as a British colony, Hong Kong did not have a tradition treaty with mainland China or Taiwan or Macau. And in 2018, there was a famous murder case. Uh, a, a Hong Kong, a Hong Konger took her took his 20 year old Hong Kong girlfriend who had been pregnant for five months on a vacation in Taiwan. He killed her, uh, dumped her body in a bush near, near a light rail station. He fled back to Hong Kong. And because of Hong Kong's British era colonial laws, he cannot be prosecuted for a crime that's not committed on Hong Kong soil, and he cannot be extradited to Taiwan to stand for trial because there's no extradition treaty between Hong Kong and Taiwan. And um, because he, he did stole her girlfriend's uh, bank card and retrieve about um, 18,000 Hong Kong dollars from her girlfriend's bank account and took her iPhone 6. So Hong Kong police were able to detain him on the charge of theft. So he was sentenced by the Hong Kong court to 29 month in prison for theft, right? But the Hong Kong court cannot prosecute him for murder. Now the, the, the victim's parents 
ask, you know, Hong Kong government to work out a deal with Taiwan so the murder can be brought to trial. This was the genesis of the extradition treaty. And because Hong Kong has become a Chinese territory since 1997, and because mainland China, the People's Republic of China, claims jurisdiction over Taiwan, so in order for Hong Kong to have a extradition treaty with Taiwan, it basically would need an extradition treaty to cover all the Chinese territories. So Taiwan, mainland China, and Macau. That was a content of the bill. And <clears throat> there was a huge uproar being raised by Hong Kong media, particularly by um, the Hong Kong uh, one of the the leading Hong Kong tabloid, Apple Daily, was run by uh, a billionaire media tycoon, Jimmy Lai, whom the Wall Street Journal and New York Times had described as a Rupert Murdoch of Asia. He, he's very anti-Beijing, and he used the opportunity to fan, um, fan anger and discontent against extradition bill. Now, uh, one one thing to note about Jimmy Lai is he is very close with the Neo Kong establishment in United States. Uh, in July, while the Hong Kong protest was going on, Jimmy Lai came to Washington to meet with uh, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and then National Security Advisor John Bolton. Well, John Bolton is gone now, but this was back in July, so. It was very unusual for a media tycoon to meet all three big countries, big three uh, regime change honchos in yeah. in United States in one in one day, and um, you know, and also Jimmy Lai was on record of bankrolling the Hong Kong protest in 2014, the so-called Hong Kong Occupy movement also known as uh, Hong Kong Umbrella Movement of 2014. And, and this, uh, this, this what the Hong Kong media portrayed the extradition bill as some kind of backdoor uh, for, for mainland China to extend its jurisdiction over Hong Kong to impose its law. So it says, you know, the, for crimes committed on mainland, right, uh, they can be the criminals can be requested to be extradited back to mainland China. Now, people were afraid that, you know, that might mean, say, um, political prisoners or people who are accused of political crimes or political dissidents might be able to, might be extradited back to China for prosecution, you know, because, you know, Hong Kong runs under different rules in China. For example, Falun Gong, the cult Falun Gong is uh, banned in mainland China, but not, but not in Hong Kong, right? They operate freely in Hong Kong, and and but in so there was a lot of fear. But uh, you know, actually, the detail of the bill was very clear that um, the the political crime will not be covered under the extradition treaty, and the Hong Kong court has to approve extradition on case-by-case case basis. So the Hong Kong judge must sign off on each extradition uh, requested, right? So there's a lot of safeguard 
already built in inside the extradition treaty. But that's not important, right? The important was thing was what the media tried to whip up the fear that somehow uh, mainland China found a back door into impose its uh, so-called authoritarian authoritarian rule on Hong Kong. And that got a lot of people upset. Um, many people were on the street uh, ostensibly defending the one country, two system formulation. And, and so this was uh, back in June when first was reported one million Hong Konger took to the street. Um, that was, you know, the U.S. media was basically taking the claim by the protest organizers as is, you know, one million people. Well, you know, considering how Hong Kong only have seven, like about 7.5 million people, you know, that's almost one in seven. Very impressive number. Um, about a month later, actually, Reuters came out with an image analysis of the crowd, and it concluded there were about 250,000 people attended. You know, still a large number, but nowhere close to the million figure. In fact, it was a lot more closer to the to the number that was claimed by the Hong Kong police, which is, was you know 150,000. So, um, so in any case, there was a mass movement in Hong Kong. There was a lot of people taken to the street. There's no deny about that. Um, one of the reason is, you know, in the territories, there's a lot of unease and anxiety about future of Hong Kong under the Chi mainland Chinese rule because, you know, when, when Hong Kong was first hand over, um, then the spring leader of China, then Xiaoping, promised um, 50 years of one country, two system with no change. Uh, and But now we're in year 2019, you know, we're approaching the deadline for one one country, two system which is 2047 pretty soon, you know, it's only, 20, we're only 28 years away from, from 2047. So the Hong Kongers, they, they don't know what the future brings. And, you know, many of them do treasure what, what they have currently, which is a separate system from mainland China. And, and, and so there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. Um, and there's a lot of discontent because uh, particular among the youth, um, one thing you will notice about the Hong Kong protester is that the protesters skewer very much toward the young, to to from the teenager to the early uh, early twenties, and most of these people are not. They're most of those people are not born with memories of British colonial rule. Many of them, in fact, were uh, either born or brought up after 1997, the handover to China. So they have never known the life under the British colonial control. But so for them, um, you know, the, the, the British colonial era became some kind of a lost golden age where when supposedly everything used to be better, right? And, that sounds, <laughs> and, that sounds, and the fact yeah. is, you, wasn't really it wasn't really i mean yeah there's a reason like a a, a huge a, a quite big portion of the older generation people who actually live under the british colonial rule are not on the street or, or, or in fact are are against the protest because 
they know what the life used to be like. I mean, in 1967, there was a huge wave of uh, British, uh, there was a huge wave of anti-British protests in the territory of Hong Kong. And it was suppressed by Britain. Britain has to had to deploy Royal Marine on the streets of Hong Kong with bayonets, and and there were mass arrests. And 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 after it's only after that 1967 huge labor unrest in Hong Kong, which you know, which the British government called riots, and then then British government started to take steps to 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 um make some reform to to ameliorate ameliorate the con- the condition for the working class in hong kong um so in 1970s and 1980s uh you know the, during the last two two three decades of british rule things got better you know it, it wasn't as bad as it before so but those those two decades somehow God remember as you know the golden um, <laughs> the golden days of the British colonial rule when everything was just peachy, but it, it really wasn't. And and um, n- another another artifact of the British colonial rule is that the fact that um, in agreeing to the one country two system formulation. Um, mainland Ch- Chinese government basically allows a British colonial structure be preserved intact through the handover. Um, as I mentioned before, you know the, the the Hong Kong legislature is controlled by the local elite, the, the Hong Kong oligarchies, many of whom are composed of real estate tycoon. And and there's another um, instance where the Hong Kong government col- colludes with the Hong Kong oligarchs to put the squeeze on the working people of Hong Kong. Um, because during the British colonial rule, um, the, under the British law for Hong Kong, all the land in Hong Kong belonged to the Hong Kong colonial government. And, and so the Hong Kong government makes most of its revenue from selling land. And, and this, uh, this way it keeps the taxes law uh, the the taxes low, um, but also because primarily because at the time the British Empire required its colonies to be self sustaining, right? So so you know one of the uh, virtues extolled uh, about Hong Kong is how it's a self sustaining crown colony, and the way it sustains its colonial rule or colonial government is by selling land. In Hong Kong, and and this gives the Hong Kong government an incentive to artificially inflate land prices. So one feature about Hong Kong, not many people know, is that Hong Kong actually have a lot of land, especially on the new territory that that the last piece of land that Britain acquired from China. There's a lot of open spaces in Hong Kong, but. Um, you know, because Hong Kong government derived most of its revenue from land sales, uh, and because it has an incentive to jack up the land price, it does. You know, every year you only portion off a very small lot of land for development to the to the developers, and then these uh, real estate tycoons then just pass the price down to the consumers, and 
after 1997, uh, because the central government of China taken a pretty hands-off approach to Hong Kong, you know, it's just, you know, let Hong Kong or rule Hong Kong, that's the slogan. You end up, the Hong Kong government, uh, particularly the Hong Kong legislature, ended up being dominated by business interests, by the, the oligarchs of Hong Kong, uh, and many of whom are the real estate tycoons. So before, um, before 1997, before the handover, the British colonial gov uh, government of Hong Kong introduced a stopgap measure to um, to make up for the problem it introduced by creating about 20 to 30 K units of public housing for families starting out. Um, these are these are not fancy apartments, but they're you know provide people at least a place to live. The 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 deal is supposedly that you know people will have a place to live and then they will be encouraged to work hard and for the eventually move up to those private uh, housing development that's been developed by the tycoons. Now after 1997 um the the Hong Kong the that that building project got much reduced. Um, in fact, it, it went from the Hong Kong government went from building 20 to 30 K units of public housing to build only 2 K units of public housing per year. Huge reduction. Um, in fact, the uh, the Hong Kong chief executive, Dong Qihua, who was appointed by Beijing, uh, he proposed in 1998 to uh, to have the Hong Kong government to to construct 85k unit of public housing, right? So a huge increase in hope of uh, providing more solving the housing problem on the territory. But unfortunately, he met a terrible timing because in the summer of 1998, the Asian financial crisis broke out in Thailand and very soon spread to Hong Kong and Hong Kong government had to spend billions of dollars to defend its uh, stock market and exchange rate. And then, um, and then, you know, Hong Kong's property market crashed. At one point, it crashed 70% from its peak. Um, so a lot of the Hong Kong middle class families, you know, went bankrupt because of the, the property market crash. And at this juncture, when the Hong Kong government, uh, Chief executive tried to introduce legislation to build even more public housing was met with a lot of resistance in a lot of uh, and the real estate tycoon seized on people's discontent, you know, got people on the street, whip up the anger, got people on the street, then forced the Hong Kong government to retract on its plans to build more public housing. So ever since then, um, you know, Hong Kong government has only been building 2K unit of public housing per year, even though after, you know, 2003, Hong Kong property market recovered and pushed to start to push to new heights. So right now, Hong Kong real estate is one of the most affordable real estate market in the world. You know, a lot of people's salaries got eaten up by rent. And, and young people, they can't afford 
many of them can't afford their own place, so they have to live with their parents well into their 20s and some, some of them into their 30s. Um, and at the same time, the Hong Kong economy has underwent drastic transition because, uh, you know, or back in, you know, Hong Kong, what <clears throat> used to be an economic backwater be before 1949. And after 1949, after the Chinese Communist government come to power in mainland, uh, the, a lot of the Shanghai, capital, Chinese capitalists in Shanghai, they've, they took their capital and fled to Hong Kong. And, and there were a lot of refugees from the Chinese Civil War. And then later, the Great Chinese Famine also flood into Hong Kong. So that's the combination of the cheap labor provided by the refugees and the capital uh, from the Chinese capital flight that created the combination for creating the so-called Hong Kong miracle, which is based on, you know, cheap labor manufacturing. And so, so Hong Kong started off as a, as a manufacturing hub as of one of the, uh, four Asian tiger economies. But as the, as China, the mainland Chinese market opened up, um, you know, China itself transformed by welcoming market, adopting a market economy. A lot of the Hong Kong capitalist tycoons, they, they, they took their capital and they started investing in mainland, uh, moved their factories across the border where the, you know, the labor price is much, much cheaper. So what ended up happening is it hollowed up manufacturing sector in Hong Kong. And what Hong Kong was left with then is... Uh, finance and real estate as the twin pillars of Hong Kong economy. And, and, and as Hong Kong economy become increasingly financialized, um, you know, in the so-called service economy, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, it's just simply not providing a lot of good paying jobs for the, for the young people who are joining the job market. I mean, the, the problem that face the Hong Kong youth is not that dissimilar from uh, the problem facing millennials in the United States or much of the uh, Europe, or much of the developed uh, West. That you know, you, we have a, a increasingly financialized economy, a service-based economy, but that's not, but not providing enough high-paying jobs for everyone. Um, you know, the, the rich, rich getting richer, poor getting poor, and, and then, you know, increasingly unaffordable uh, housing market, right? So there, there's a lot of legitimate grievances, a lot of legitimate discontent. I mean, a lot of the young people, uh, you know, facing with all these issues already exist in Hong Kong. This, this protest provided a, a channel, right? Like, like an outlet for them to vent their anger. Now, having said that, having said that, that this is, is a, a genuine mass movement, it does not mean that um, just because CIA did not get, <laughs> did not put a million people on the street in Hong Kong, it does not mean like a mass movement cannot be infiltrated, manipulated, and uh, co-opted by outside forces with clear agenda. Because... The Hong Kong, one of the features of the Hong Kong protest movement is it lacks a clear ideology. And as often happens in a, in a mass movement without clear ideology, it's often 
you know, been shaped and co-opted by, by other agents with clear agendas to play. And in this case, what we do know is um, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is basically offshoot of CIA, had been providing funds to Hong Kong and general Chinese, China, uh, greater China area since 2014 to the amount of $29 million. Um, you know, it's, it's funding all these so-called, um, you know, like the, uh, let me, I mean, the, 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 the root of, um, the root of national endowment for democracy is, is pretty shady. <laughs> it, I, um, I mean, the, yes, I mean, basically it, they decided that, um, that, you know, CIA funding all the, all the insurgency movement around the world looks bad. <laughs> that would, that, that, that's bad optics. So what they instead need is they need a, it, a softer approach, right? They, right. So that's how, um, that's how NED was founded. That, that was the main reason that NED was founded in the first place. And, and, and right now we are in the middle of an incipient cold war between China and US initiated none other than our government <laughs> that that you know right you know china is um pretty united overall but it does have these peripheries you know like like hong kong where where it's considered there's a soft underbellies of china where it is vulnerable right when, when, when there's there is uh <laughs> societal divide when there is discontent, where it, there is dis, uh, grievances. So these grievances then get easily exploited, right? So I already talked about Jimmy Lai, who was a big Hong Kong media tycoon, who worked closely with the neocon establishment in Washington. And then we have the so-called the face of the Hong Kong protest that's often been promoted by the Western media, that's Joshua Wong, this uh, young 20-something-year-old um, Hong Kong student, uh, along with a Hong Kong singer, Denise Ho, um, these two were actually trained by Oslo Freedom Forum. Um, you know, there was a 2014 BBC documentary uh, where they openly talk about how Oslo Freedom Forum trains these color revolutionaries around the world, including Hong Kong protesters. At that time, they were talking about the 2014 Hong Kong protests. That's when Joshua Wong first made his name. Uh, but yes, he was trained by Oslo Freedom Forum, which is founded by uh, a Norwegian Venezuelan uh, right-wing tycoon with deep ties with, with intelligence agencies around the world, and uh, and and he found not he, he, just one of the the you know pe few people that Oslo Freedom Forum funds are white helmets you know in Syria, yeah. um, uh, Ukrainian nationalist in the Maidan uh, in the Maidan revolution, yeah. and and you know like. 
recently, you know, we have Joshua Wong again in Berlin. Uh, this is not Oslo Freedom Forum, but another one of these um, National Endowment for Democracy founded uh, uh, gatherings where uh, Joshua was literally seen hobnobbing with the uh, heads of uh, white helmets, uh, uh, former Ukrainian officials, and uh, and pussycat riots, yeah. <laughs> and, and all the usual suspects, um, and 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 you know, then again, you know, Western media try. Uh, on one hand, you try to present Joshua Wong and Denise Ho as the face of the protest. On the other hand, you try to deflect the criticism of them being U.S. founded by saying, oh, but uh, the Hong, the nature of Hong Kong protests is really leaderless. Joshua Wong is really not the leader, you know, he's just a face. Oh, that's great, you know. That doesn't prevent Joshua Wong from hobnobbing from likes of Marco Rubio, who, you know, never find a color revolution he didn't like. And... Uh, and um, you know, <laughs> Marco Rubio, as we speak right now, is trying to push through a legislation in Congress uh, called the Hong Kong, I think, Hong Kong Democracy and Freedom Act, where you will ask the U.S. Congress to certify annually whether Hong Kong remain autonomous enough from China. You know, for uh, if they find Hong Kong is not sufficiently autonomous then the U.S. will apply economic sanction against Hong Kong and Hong Kong government officials. I mean, it's on the face of it, it's just ridiculous. You know, Hong Kong is a Chinese territory, right? Like, whether, I mean, just imagine, you know, the Chinese government passed a legislation to say, to certify whether, you know, there's clear separation of, uh, st you know, is there's enough uh, states' rights are being protected in the United States. You know, if there's clear separation of the clear federal government and the state government, and, and if we find the find them in violation, we will apply sanction. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know, it's it's Hong Kong is part of China. It's none of U.S. business. But that is not the point. Marco Rubio never really care about. You know, people in third world countries. <laughs> Marco Rubio never really care about Venezuelans or, or 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 Hong Kongers. What he care about is, um, you know, support all these color revolution notions around the world, all the regime change to destabilize the the so called enemies of the United States. By enemies, he means enemies of U.S. hegemony around the world, <laughs> because that's what we're really defending. We're not defending the homeland of the United States against against uh, uh, enemies, foreign or domestic. We're we're defending the U.S. hegemony in the world, <laughs> because you know what what business is U.S. having Hong Kong seriously, other than to trade, right? And and. And and this is all nicely wrapped and packaged under freedom and democracy. You know how can how can you be against freedom and democracy, right? I mean, this is so. This is the nature of the protest in Hong Kong, and one of the main distinguished feature of the Hong Kong protest is that is the use of violence has been normalized. And in fact, we have a, a, a New York Times article, opinion piece by a Hong Kong protester called the Hong Kong protesters tactic to get the police to hit you. 
And in the article, you, you discuss so-called the marginal violence theory. And you talks about using aggressive non-violence tactics to push overreaction from the police and the government. And if the, if the police overreact, then you win a million people on your side, right? Uh, right now, we're, it's not even aggressive nonviolence. I mean, right now, they're, they're literally using violence. I mean, Hong Kong protesters, so-called protesters, I mean, you might as well call them rioters because they're burning the Hong Kong metro stations. Hong Kong has one of the world's nicest, you know, public trend, public infrastructure. I mean, I, I've been to Hong Kong in July. Uh, it, it's a, really a breeze to use the Hong Kong train, like the you can get pretty much everywhere, uh, super convenient. But now, um, because because an incident about so several weeks ago when. Uh, the Hong Kong uh, Metro Authority, they, they announced they, they're going to uh, shut down the train early because, you know, the, the Hong Kong protesters, like the ordinary Hong Kong people, they rely on the trains to get to and from places. So the Hong Kong protesters use the trains to get to and from protests. So about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, the Hong Kong Metro Station, <laughs> they were under the pressure from the government to uh, do something. So they announced they were uh, going to shut, uh, they're going <clears> to <throat> close service early. So in 9 p.m. instead of, you know, uh, normally like 11 or or, or midnight, so we're going to shut down service at 9 p.m. So that upset a lot of the protesters and they're calling the 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 uh, the MTR service in Hong Kong the party train and by party train they mean uh, not party party they mean the the Chinese Communist Party train oh so they took to vandalize uh, the train stations everywhere in Hong Kong they're burning down train stations smashing windows yeah. smashing down cart readers um, so they don't have to pay <laughs> and they they um, uh, in in addition to vandalizing uh, the train station itself, uh, and they also got in fights with the passengers who do use the train because uh, there was a famous case in August 23rd, uh, August 31st, um, they went to the Prince Edward station, start smashing up the place. They smash all the security cameras because, you know, those are surveillance. So, and then they, when they got on the train car, they got into confrontation with the passengers there who accused them of, of uh, vandalizing the station and told them to get off the train. And then they started a fight with uh, with the people who are already in the train car. Um, a bunch of middle-aged uncles fend them off. <laughs> so they used uh, fire, the spray fire distinguisher inside the close confined space of the train car. Uh, it's actually highly dangerous move. And they, you know, the, the fight went down for about 10 minutes, which give plenty of time for the, the riot police to arrive. And, you know, when the riot police arrive on the scene, they beat up the protester. And there were tons of cameras in the Hong Kong protest. That's why we get the constant feed on Twitter of all these video footages. But a lot of the Western media, they, fo they focus on particular aspects of the Hong Kong protest. 
I'm not denying there's there's police violence or police brutality, but what we often see, you know, in in the media here in the United States has already been gone through a filtering lens. We only see the police violence, police brutality against the protester who often portray as these innocent, peaceful protesters, right? We what we don't see is a part they were beating up people, they were vandalizing the train station, they were throwing Molotov cocktails against the government headquarters, right? We, we don't see that part. But, but you know, what has happened, one thing to keep in mind about in Hong Kong, the protests have been going on for three months. So far, there have been no death as in the hands of police action. And because there's no death, um, you know, there, there's the only death that resulted are suicides by a selected few Hong Kong protesters who may, you know, have, you know, some mental issues who killed themselves to pro to protest against the extradition bill, right? Now, keep in mind, the extradition bill uh, was what triggered the protest in the first place. And after the huge peaceful protest in June, the Hong Kong government announced they will suspend the extradition bill, but that was not enough for the protesters. They they uh, demanded a formal withdrawal. Uh, in July, the Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam publicly stated that the bill is dead, right? But the the, the protester didn't find that enough. They they keep on protesting, and finally, uh, just a few weeks ago, Carrie Lam finally publicly announced in front of television that Hong Kong government is formally withdrawing the extradition bill, which was the biggest demand of the protesters. But guess what? The protests went on. The protests, not only protests went on, but the violence has escalated because, um, you know, right now it's not even about extradition bill anymore. It's about, you know, funk. From the from the point of view, from a lot of the youngsters who are out there protesting, you know, it's romantic to be part of a struggle, right? To be part of a, a revolution, right? I, I I have when I was 13 years old, I you know I participated in the rally supporting the Tiananmen Square student protest in China. This was 1989 when I was in China. So I understand, you know, you get caught up in that emotion, the very strong emotions in a, in a mass movement. You get carried away and you feel like you are doing something. You are, you know, you, you feel like you are, you are making the history. It's very powerful, very romantic, uh, very emotional, right? But I, I can also tell you, when I was 13 year, years old, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, right? And and a lot of the young people in Hong Kong, they're out there, they're protesting, you know, because we rebel is rebellion is is romantic. It's part of the youth culture, but there are people who you know who are actually leveraging them for other purposes. You know, they they they. You know who who wants to see Hong Kong destabilized, right? Clearly not China, not not Hong Kong government. Clearly, um, you know, but United States 
don't mind. United States don't mind if Hong Kong, an important financial center of China, is getting destabilized, is is causing headache for China. Um, you know, unlike Ukraine, where uh, you know color revolution, regime change actually happened, regime change is unlikely to happen in Hong Kong just because you know it's too close to China. There, that's just it's just I just don't see that possible. But U.S. could help cause a lot of headache and could have by destabilize the situation, uh, just acting as a spoiler. And and you can sim- do that simply by spreading funds through uh, National Endowment for Democracy and, you know, through a very helpful media that spread a certain narrative to a very, a, to a sympathetic public, right? And, and, and simply to abet and escalate the situation. And that's what exactly has been happening since June. I mean, the, the, the violence just got worse and worse and worse. I mean, the, 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 first act, the, the first violence on the part of the protester, a uh, big major part of violence was uh, right after the Hong Kong government initially suspended the extradition bill. That's when the, the Hong Kong protesters stormed the Hong Kong legislature vandalized the building, tore the Hong Kong flag from the from the legislature and replaced it with a British colonial flag with Union Jack, right? And at that time, you know, everybody was shocked. They say, oh, it must be a, um, it must be a false flag, uh, you know, it's a trap. You know, the, the, the police withdrew, so, you know, they did it to make the protesters look bad. And the, and, 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 or there must be some, provocateurs who were infiltrated the protest movement right and then you have some hong kong protest leaders who film film themselves and put selfies of themselves inside the hong kong legislature you know flashing peace signs victory signs around with the union uh, with the british uh, union jack flag and say hey look look what we done and you know and then <laughs> it's it's hard increasingly hard to deny you know what had happened but ever since then the violence just got worse and worse i mean like now we have people throwing molotov cocktails on the street to disrupting traffic people holding up the train beating up local residents um uh, i mean the you can say this is uh, maybe just a, a, a small minority of the protesters, but they are not being condemned at all by the mainstream media. I mean, in fact, the, 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 the so-called opposition in Hong Kong, the, you know, the, uh, led by Martin Lee, who National Endowment for Democracy had devoted an entire biography page to him, and call him the father of Hong Kong's democracy. Uh, the, 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 the Hong Kong opposition, the pan-democrat camp, is very much silent on the protester violence. You know, it's, it, it, I mean, everybody just acknowledged, in fact, that this is the way things done now. This is just, the violence is, a, is an option, is a means to an end. And, um, you know, I, I, I just don't see how this can end happily because, you know, the. So I have the, a question. The, you know, go ahead. 
what do you think will be the outcomes? Like one, one, you know, if it, if it goes well or if it goes wrong with the protests. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some, um, so initially, um, you know, the, 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 there's, there's a lot of talks about the Hong Kong protests in relation to China in the Western media. A lot of them is based on very wrong assumptions. You know, one of the common trope is that, oh, the Hong Kong protest is like a spark that's going to light off the, you know, a wave of protests across China. In fact, that's that's not true because um, in the beginning, that most of the mainland Chinese people were uh, rather indifferent or at best curious about the Hong Kong protest because it seemed mostly as a local affair, some, something limited to Hong Kong. But one thing I haven't really talked about is this really ugly undercurrent of Hong Kong nativism in the Hong Kong protest. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of legitimate discontent and grievances faced by the Hong Kong youth uh, because of the changing nature of, of the economy of, of Hong Kong in a globalized uh, economy. And, 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 but instead of protesting against tycoons who caused them all this misery, they blame everything on mainland immigrants and uh, on mainland tourists. Right? I mean, it's like how people in the United States, you know, now, ever since the Great Recession, faced with the uncertain economic future, some of them took just to blame immigrants, you know, uh, blame Mexican immigrants, Latino immigrants, because it's just so easy to blame the immigrants. Um, and, and that's what's happening in Hong Kong as well. And, 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 the, and the, the, that, that undercurrent of, of uh, Hong Kong nativism really come to forefront during the protest. So, so I talk about Apple Daily owned by Jamie Lai, the, the big media tycoon who has financed the protest and who work with, work with, uh, <coughs> work with the U.S. neocon establishment. Back in 20, 2012, they put up a full-page ad in Apple Daily calling the mainland Chinese people locusts for coming to Hong Kong. It's a giant ads of this like Hong Kong city cityscape in kind of like yellow, bleak yellow uh, background with this giant locust looming over. And, and in the Chinese caption, it says, Hong Kongers, don't you have enough, you know, to you're spending a one million Hong Kong dollars every eighteen minutes to support the pregnant uh, mainland women to come to Hong Kong oh to leech gosh. off our, you know, <laughs> health system, our our social welfare, and 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 there was even a song called "The Locust World," where you know, like that was popularized in twenty fourteen, you know, called the the mainland Chinese locust coming to Hong Kong, eating up, consuming everything. I mean, uh, that was just, you, you know, people, you can say, oh, that's just trolling or whatever. But in, in this current protest in like 2019, it, it got physical. You know, there, there were, there was a mainland traveler in the Hong Kong airport who was accused of being a, a cop from mainland China uh, because they, they, the Hong Kong protester at the time, they, they had a set in at the airport to block 
they block the travelers from from reaching their departure gate, and they uh, they targeted people who spoke Mandarin coming from from mainland China. And this guy, who they accused to be a mainland cop, they 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 detained him and they beat him for hours inside the airport. Uh, they, they beat him. He passed out twice into unconsciousness. And when the paramedics tried to reach him, finally reach him, they prevented the paramedics from leaving the airport. All this was live streamed live on uh, many news sites, including CNN. And this was seen by many mainland Chinese people inside China, including my, my mainland Chinese cousin. Um, one of the facts that people don't know is that CNN is actually not blocked inside China. You can access CNN freely in China. So, And CNN ran a live blog on the Hong Kong protest. So my mainland Chinese cousin saw this in China on his laptop, watch it live as this mainland, mainland Chinese guy being beaten, detained, beaten unconscious and denied medical treatment because he was from mainland China. He was very, very angry and I can relate. And and so right now in mainland China, there's zero sympathy for the Hong Kong protesters. And if anything, a lot of people are very, very angry. They're actually demanding the central government to do something. And, and, and many of them even call the central government to send in the PLA. So that's another thing that a lot of the Western media uh, pundits, you know, they're almost kind of wishing for a, a Tiananmen 2.0 yeah. scenario. They're, they're almost like wishing with glee that China was sending the PLA and, and cause bloodshed, and then you will be another major news event. And so far, the Chinese central government has not taken the bait. Uh, what it did do is amass a huge uh, people's armed police uh, force along the border, in, in just across the border from Hong Kong and Shenzhen. It held a military exercise, uh, anti-riot drill, a uh, few weeks ago, uh, almost a month ago. And but mostly, it really is just for domestic consumption, because at the time, there were a lot of the angry mainland Chinese people demanding the central government to do something to end the riot in Hong Kong. And, you know, the government had to do something to show that they are, they are on it, right? So part of that, that was the, the huge show of force in Shenzhen uh, near, nearly a month ago. And then um, recently, there was a rotation of troops of PLA into Hong Kong, because um, ever since 1997, since the handover, Hong Kong handover, China has sent anywhere from 5,000 to 7,000 PLA soldiers into Hong Kong, and they're staying in their Hong Kong garrison. Uh, but uh, you know, they they rotate annually, um, and uh, but this time, this year's rotation, it was widely publicized by the U.S. state media, right? It's, it's also to show a message, but you know this was seized by uh, Mr. Donald Trump as uh, <laughs> our intelligence, military intelligence has shown that Ch you, China has gathered a large military force on the border of Hong Kong. I mean, I, I don't know who showed this to Donald Trump. I mean, people like this was literally first shown by the Chinese state media. Right, <laughs> deploying PLA to Hong Kong. The, the, the first people breaking the news was literally Chinese state media. 
again, that was a show that show of force was mostly for domestic consumption uh, because the government leader of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, has come out twice publicly saying, stating that, you know, Beijing has uh, pretty has full confidence in me, uh, Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong police to handle the situation. So in other words, in the immediate future, there is no, there's probably no prospect of, of direct intervention by China. Unless we get another press conference by Carrie Lam, but so far from all the all the uh, public speech she gave, that's an indication that that right now it's 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 uh, the central government of China is seeing this is a Hong Kong specific issue. It's letting the you know the Hong Kong government handling it itself, and and I think it's probably a wise decision because um, you know that because you would just be another. Another um, event that that the world media will glomp onto, um, and and you will show you know the the, China, the authoritarian bad China is putting on its boots on, on helpless Hong Kong, right? So right now Hong Kong itself is actually pretty divided. Um, that's another thing that the Western media don't tell us is that um, there is before the escalation violence, the the public opinion was already evenly divided towards a protest you know there's there's um 40 about 40 40 um 43 percent uh, in a poll by mean poll um 40 it was 46 percent versus 53 percent who who thought there was uh too much violence during the protest right and and who, who decried the violence during the protest and 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 this was before the major escalation, before the the use of petrol bombs and, and burning down the, the the train stations, so right now people, a lot of people in Hong Kong, especially among older generation, are increasingly fed up with the protests and the disruption it's causing to their daily life. And and what I see is um, the more radical protesters will keep pushing. For increasingly more radical actions, because you know the the momentum has to keep going. Otherwise, one of the remaining demands of the protester is amnesty for all the protesters, right? And and I don't I don't think they're gonna get it at this point. I mean, the even if if the Hong Kong government accede to that demand and declare amnesty, they're just gonna piss off a lot of the 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 pro Hong Kong government people who. Who, who wanted to see them crack down on the rioters? So um, what I see is that the, the increasingly vi- the increasing violence is turning off more and more people, and 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 the Hong Kong protesters are now alienating uh, people who previously might have been sympathetic to their aims, and and eventually, you know, that will just give. Uh, more impetus for for the government to 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 crack down. So I I don't know if that means a direct Chinese government intervention. Uh, but um, I think we we're probably going to see the protest to keep keep going for a while. You know, I was surprised actually that uh, you know I thought by the time school starts in September, the my kids going back to school, things will cool off a little bit. That that has not happened. And, and, and in, in a way it makes sense because, you know, 
it is in the interest of CIA and ED and U.S. State Department to keep the shit show going, right? And and so we're probably going to see increase uh, more protests, more violence, at least in the immediate future. But I I think in the long term, the the protesters they're burning bridges. They're they they are, um, you know, if they had taken. When the if when the Hong Kong government initially suspended the, the extradition bill back in June, if they had declared victory back then, they could have leveraged that victory, you know, into more um, power during the next election cycle to, to win more more seats for their favorite candidates. But at this point, I don't I don't think they will. Um, I don't think they will win. Politically, uh, so so everything is now is become a street battle. But ultimately, you know, I don't think they can win uh, in this. Uh, you know, in terms of violence, it just comes down to violence. You know, I don't think they can win against uh, a state. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, state power. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the reason why I brought you was because I I have personal like relationships with Chinese people. I was raised by um, a Chinese man, uh, my stepdad, and he was from Hong Kong, right? He grew up in Hong Kong and he used to tell me stories about living in Hong Kong under British, you know, uh, colonization and moving to the U.S. And But, you know, he always identified as Chinese, you know? Yes. And I, just like you said, yeah. like the younger people don't, uh, you're right. I, I, now it makes sense. They, they don't know what it's like to live under colonization. And, yes. um, you know, when I remember, I have memories as a child, you know, the late 90s when um, Hong Kong became part of China and we were watching the news and he was he was happy. You know, we had a dinner, yeah. a big dinner. We had celebrations and everything. And as a kid, I don't know. I, I wasn't Chinese, so I don't know. I never lived in China, you know, or Hong Kong. But... You yeah. know, uh, it, it makes sense now when all this is going on, looking back at my memories as a child, how how happy he was that, um, you know, he, you know, with, you know, Hong Kong became part of China. I went to visit him in Cal you know, California this last summer and I had dinner with him and I asked him, I was like, what do you think about these protests that are happening in Hong Kong? And he uh -huh. said, um, well, you know, the British were there. And they didn't want to let go of it, and now they're funding this, these people that don't that you know don't know much. He was like, mm -hmm. "Why don't they just leave? We don't want the British there. We don't want your colonization." But you know, to me, it, it seems like, you know, as a native person, you know, he's the one that taught me about colonization through the Chinese lens. A lot of people in, in America don't understand or don't even know that the Chinese have gone to colonization by the British. By the Japanese, you know, yeah. and they went to a Holocaust at the same time the Jewish people did, you know, which it was even more yeah. people that went, you know, I think it was 10 million Chinese. I don't know. I don't know the numbers exactly, you know, that went to the Holocaust and, you know, the Chinese people were just fed up, you know, and yeah. it was like, uh, I don't know, there was this, this Bruce Lee movie where like the Japanese people gave Bruce Lee like a sign. It was like sick man of Asia, you know? So, this, yeah. you know, it, you know it, it was really a disgusting time of colonization towards the Chinese. And to have these protesters wave colonial flags, they're idiots in my point of view, you know, as a, as a native person, 
you know, waving colonial U.S. flags or singing, you know, American songs. They're, they're, you're an idiot for doing that, you know. But that's only my point of view. And I, I didn't want to, like, you know, put my point of view as a native person on a, a Chinese perspective on their own situation. That's why I brought you on, you know, as yeah. a Chinese person. But I really think that, you know, as native people, we have to, we have to look across the world and see what our own government's doing. It's not really my government because I'm native, but the, the, what U.S. government is doing to uh, colon, try to colonize other people through pro-democracy movements, you know. We deal with colonization to this day all the time, every day. So and it's, yeah. we have to realize as native people here in the U.S. that it's still happening across the world and we should, you know, have solidarity with other people that are the U.S. is trying to colonize right now. Yes. Yes. Solidarity, brother. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I mean, like what we, uh, you know, sometimes it, it, it surprised me that, you know, many people in U.S. don't even realize that U.S. is an empire. But um, <laughs> if you look at all the, uh, you know, all the media, uh, like now, now people are, we're, we're, we're like, media pundits are going crazy because, you know, there was attack on the Saudi oil refinery in the Gulf. It's like, okay, so what? I mean, people are like, why are, why must U.S. get involved in this? And, 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 you know, like, but the, the, the underlying premise is that, you know, U.S. hegemony is a good force is objectively good for the world <laughs> it is a us is a benign force around the world but but that's that's that only you know that line only only people in us you know may, or, or, or western world buy into that that line of thinking it, a lot of the people who are on, on the other end of the us hegemony don't don't share the same view quite the same view and and, and, and when it comes to Hong Kong, you are right, because especially the older generation, they're a lot more um, nationalistic and identify more strongly with being Chinese. And if you remember, like, like the Hong Kong movies from the 80s and 90s, you know, oh, I remember have, them. Yeah. He used to take me to movie theaters, the Chinese movie theaters and then watch Chinese movies. <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, you're in from the seventies, and you have Jet, you have first, you have Bruce Lee beating yeah. up all these, uh, all these, uh, all these, uh, uh, the British uh, American yeah. uh, 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 villains, and then you have or, or, or Japanese, right? And then then you have a uh, uh, a Jet Li in in uh, Once Upon a Time in China. Yeah, one of that movie. <laughs> yeah, and like it's all about like the, you know the. The, the, the Chinese people gotta gotta um, gotta fight gotta fight this this imposed colonization and that that was that that's a Hong Kong movie directed by Hong Kong movie directors I mean this was you know in, in the movie was I think it came out in the early 90s so before the before the handover before 1997 so that was the overwhelming mood in Hong Kong and and, and shared by many Hong Kong people of older generation and I think you know the the current crop of youth protesters they're just being misled i mean on one hand i understand because you know people are, people are young you know some they're impressionable 
they, they haven't been properly educated about the history. And that's another thing that, you know, the, the, the protest back in <laughs> 2014, the Joshua Wong was involved on. So, and so this was, the, the protest was, was touched off back then was because, you know, uh, uh, Hong Kong government was trying to introduce a, a, a bill, uh, trying to have patriotic education in the curriculum. And that was <laughs> Joshua Wong and his people are against it uh, because they think it's brainwashing. Um, and in fact, a lot of the uh, uh, this time, a lot of the people went through a lot of the, the, the Hong Kong textbooks, the textbook that's used in um, primary and secondary education. And a lot of the textbook specifically, you know, portray mainland China as this really bad place, you know, like this uh, evil authoritarian place that has no no freedom and, and Hong Kong is is different and, you know, how, how Hong Kong has, has democracy and freedom and so on and so forth. I, I think that does play a role um, in, in, in people's upbringing. And, and, and yeah, I, and I think after this protest, um, I'm pretty sure there's going to be another push for patriotic education in Hong Kong. <laughs> I, I I don't see I don't see any any way around it. I mean, it's it's basically there, there need to be a deprogramming for for the youth from you know they they need to decolonize their mind. Oh, I agree. <laughs> That's what, yeah. I just uh, yeah. I thanks for sharing. That was really great. Um, I think it's really important to get like a bigger broader picture of of anything that you kind of like engage with especially here in the west where hong kong is associated right now with like the mass protests and just like seeing all the violence uh on our social yeah. media and stuff like that and really really not questioning it um yeah. per se or really you know it's it's definitely happening and you know stuff is is bad but also like not understanding the historical context i think it's really yep. easy for um, people who don't know anything about Hong Kong just kind of seeing it for the first time, you know, and kind of being easily, easily malleable, let's say, um, yes. to, to you know, these pro-democracy movements, um, as you've mentioned, and not, not really critiquing them or questioning them, like what could be behind these agendas and things like that. Um so I, I think I think you did a really thorough explanation of that. And it, it it doesn't really I guess from like somebody in the West, it doesn't really necessarily hmm. It it doesn't really like I you know, like it's like when you see the protests, it's it's like geared to provoke reactions and provoke emotions. And like I know people, um, some of my friends, uh, you know, who are kind of related to this whole situation in some form or another um so it, it's it really ties at like our emotional strings and i think that's yes. you know that can be really dangerous when it's not when you don't understand the whole like historical context or a bit more yes. about what you're actually dealing with and so i i, I think that's great that you were able to share a lot of your perspective and a lot of kind of the historical background and how Hong Kong is where it is today. Um, yeah. 
another thing that that's kind of been running my mind through my mind uh, as you've been talking is like the the youth, right? So the involvement of youth and a younger generation within protesting. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the time, youth anywhere really in the world are are pinned as like ignorant, stupid, malleable, all these different sorts of things, and kind of like oh, they're just too young to understand that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and I feel like there's also, maybe not just in Hong Kong, but in a lot of other places, there's this huge generational divide. Um, yes. You know, between like what it means to live in society, the types of rights that you're, you have, the types of ways that your society has been built because of your your ancestors, your, your, your whatever, right? Um, I yeah. feel like there's a huge disconnect and where like youth nowadays are very much moving into this new world that our, our grandparents and our parents didn't, they don't know, you know, it's a really different ball game for a lot of young people. And I think, I yeah. think, I think you really hit it spot on with saying like the protests are kind of like, they're not necessarily just about like the extradition They're 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 a symptom right they're a symptom of yes. youth not having a space youth not having a voice um being discontent yes. with hong kong itself but also with mainland china but also with being pawns of like the west and it's just kind of like you're just using us but nobody's actually listening to us um yeah and when you're young you know like it it makes a lot of sense to me when you say like it it's great to it feels good to be in a protest it feels good to like you know because you have that sort of feeling that you're making a change um you know whether you are I'm or not or whether it's it's for certain reasons is debatable but i i think I don't know. I, I just really relate to what you say about the youth, but also like I'm glad that you brought up the educational aspect because it that's really what the problem is, right? Is that we don't teach our youth the whole historical context. We don't necessarily talk to each other um, about like how we got here and what's going on. And with the increasing like generational divide, especially with like new technology and social media, it's very easy for youth to disconnect from their elders and for elders to disconnect from the youth. And we live in these like two very separate worlds that aren't talking yes. to each other. Um, and so it becomes yeah. very dangerous and it becomes very scary because then, you know, Hong Kong violent protests like this start becoming the norm um, and youth start to think that that's the way maybe that's the, that's the way forward. You know what I mean? And to me, that's, it's, it's messy, right? Um, yes. So I, I don't know. I just, I really like that you shared all of that and it, it, that's kind of what it got me thinking. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that perspective. And I also like to point out uh, that, you know, remembering back my experience when I was 13 year old in the rallies, support him and you know it was because you are you are also in it's also the comradeship uh, com comradeship yeah for sure you are you are for sure the, yeah the camaraderie of you're in the group of all like-minded people you know with your peers you, you felt supported you felt powerful because you are part of something you're part of a movement part of something larger than yourself and then you are you know you you because you, you, all these people it's it's the energy is self-reinforcing right and but sometimes you don't it, 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 it because it's so emotional it doesn't really lead you to question to really like sit back and and 
think rationally or because human was humans are not really rational creatures yeah. <laughs> but, but like this in that type of environment especially it doesn't allow for you know a, a, a more a cold-headed rational analysis on what you're trying to achieve you know I, and i think um you know having said everything i think universal suffrage and democracy are great and i um i i i also like if people who are pro hong kong protest i i i like them to think about you know what democracy means yeah. and and you know sometimes democracy is not just about uh street level uh uh, uh, uh struggle even though it, it is very much part of it but democracy also means compromise you know you want it to accommodate uh interests of all different group of people you know even people who hold you know conflicting views as yours yeah. the, the 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 you know sometimes that 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 part of democracy sometimes it's ignored yeah that's <laughs> you know, a, that's like, part of a healthy a healthy democracy right is being able to dissent and disagree without the fear of yeah. violence and yeah yeah <laughs> And, and and that's why I, I really wished, you know, back in June when they first won the victory of having um, when the first when the peaceful protest forced the Hong Kong government to to back off from the from the extradition bill. I mean, you can argue on the merit of the extradition bill, but, you know, again, again, you also falls upon the Hong Kong government itself to explain, you know, the details, of the extradition bill and, and to allay the fear of the public. And, and they haven't done a good job. Yeah. And and, and when the 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 first peaceful protest did force the Hong Kong government to suspend the bill, you know, that was a a chance, you know, to declare victory and to, you know, or to organize all that, all that newfound power in mass moving into something more, uh, you know, like political, like into political parties and, and, and when, when concentrate on when more, more seats in the upcoming election, like th these are all like part of, uh, you know, legitimate, uh, 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 uh struggles in, in, a, in a democracy. But, but I, I just, you know, I, I, I just don't think violence is the answer. Yeah, I, I also, I quickly, I just wanted to go back to your point about community. Um, I think, I think that's really important for young people. And I think I, I'm thinking about protests and well, well, you know, like the, I guess the, the, like the sort of like fluid term of what a protest means. And it's interesting that like when you're young and like you go to these protests and you see they're kind of like becoming a thing here too in the U.S. is that a lot of these youth folk are looking for a community, right? And what's yes. interesting to me is like you have that sense of camaraderie and you have that sense of like belonging within these, these spaces that are used to kind of like protest whether they're violent or not. But for me, the question isn't so much like, why do those, why do the, why does that sense of community exist within protest? But why doesn't, it, why doesn't it exist within our society? You know, like why can't youth get that same sense of like fulfillment, that same sense of community within yeah. their schools, within their communities, within their families, with each other, you know, and like, what are all the different roadblocks towards that? And I think that's really important that you, that you brought up the housing and you brought up the tycoons and the fact of like, 
the generation now um, with like millennials and stuff not being able to afford anything um, and we, we kind of like take it out on our elders of like them not making the right choices, things like that, right. um, yeah. which, you know, it's they didn't know any better per se. Not that doesn't like excuse them from everything, but also <laughs> it's it's there's nowhere to create a space, you know, to create that sense of community. And so like youth are understandably frustrated um, but it's how, it's how we move forward, right? It's how we, yes. if we're promoting violence, then that's not really a way forward. That's definitely a way back. And if you have yeah. violence, like I can see if like the PLA were to go into Hong Kong to like settle things down immediately, that would become some sort of like worldwide crisis against communism or something like that right that the u.s we would be bombarded here in the u.s with media reports of chinese violence against hong kong if something like that were to happen so i understand like mainland china's hesitance to kind of like not step in and kind of let hong kong just sort of uh, figure itself out for a little bit um yeah and because you know we will act reactionary like not me but like as a, as a U.S. society, you know, we've been fed the narrative of democracy as U.S. hegemony equals peace. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. then we kill Native peoples and violence towards Black peoples and immigrants and all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, um, so there's a lot of things we can relate to, I think. And I think it's a very much a global phenomenon that's going on. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And it's just it just boils down to like this this crazy 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 like disease of capitalism in the sense that people are you know hoarding resources and creating a lot of problems for a lot of people without being questioned um and being we're being manipulated like pawns you know with our media with with our government with our resources with our connections to each other our connections to land all that kind of stuff and it's just like it's really easy to look at Hong Kong and be like, Oh, this is a violent thing. It needs to stop. It's bad. Right. And it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's more difficult to like step back and look at the historical context and be like, okay, now, now what can I do knowing all of this information period, you know? Yes. I, and I, I like, uh, you know, how you brought up uh, again about that, um, why we don't feel that that sense of community and camaraderie, you know, outside the context of, of, of protest. And I think one of the things you you kind of already answered the question yourself is, you know, modern a modern capitalist society is very much about alienation. Yeah. You know, it, it, it violently tore apart the, the traditional fabric of of society, the, the, the bonds that, that binds like the community, you know, everybody's being kind of uprooted and, and we're expected to live in this, uh, individualistic, uh, yes. uh, a society, you know, we're, we're, like, especially in the West in the U S where individualism is kind of being elevated to, a like, a, some kind of religion. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we forget the fact that we humans are social animals we 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 need that kind of we need community we need we need the camaraderie we need to feel being part of something larger than ourselves yeah i also have a comment there but i'm stumbling right now but um 
Yeah, you know, to me, it seems like a lot of Americans um, want China to have a Western-style democracy. And I keep saying that, you know, Chinese people have their own sovereignty, have their own, you know, culture, have their own way of doing things. We don't, they don't need a Western-style democracy in China. And, you know, that, that makes them, you know, <clears throat> talk shit about the Chinese government. Oh, they're evil or this and that. But, you know, a lot of like... Well- or if the, if the Chinese, you know, really decide they want to choose a Western-style democracy, it's really up to them <laughs> to yeah, choose. exactly. It's not really up to us to decide which form is better. What we like, like it's it's like a lot of it's like the same talk of uh, 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 like in the MacArthur era America when people talk about who lost China, you know, who, yeah. who lost China. Yeah. Like, would it be who lost China? China is not U.S.'s to lose. <laughs> it's not. It's not ours. I totally agree. And you know, with Native people, with us too, like we don't need to have, you know, um, Native American uh, governments that look like the U.S. or pro democracy. Some some Native governments are lifetime roles. You know, sometimes sometimes you know they don't look like uh, U.S. governments. But I really think that um, kind of lost my train of thought. I really think that, you know, the U.S., people in the U.S., not the government, people in the U.S. have some, like, weird, like, super racist, you know, view on the Chinese people, on, on, yes. um, on like, the Chinese government. At one time, you know, I think this was, like, during 2000, the early 2000s, um, when the Internet was becoming, you know, bigger. And I kept seeing videos of like people talking shit about the Chinese government. They're like, oh, Chinese people have no culture. And me being me being raised by a Chinese person, I was just like, I, do you know what you're saying? You know, these people have like really old culture, you know, very beautiful yeah. culture. How dare you say that? But, you know, all these ignorant things come from, you know, from Americans towards the Chinese. And I still see it happening. You know, I see, you yeah. know. It's well, and the funny thing is, the people who have the strongest opinions about China or Chinese are usually yep. people who know the least. <laughs> I agree, that's been my experience too, for sure. Yeah, literally, all they know is what they've been force fed in, in the media or something they read on the internet. You know, they, they have never been experienced the real thing, and they, they somehow become this. You know, China expert, they, they have opinion on everything. It's like, come on. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's so disgusting here. When it comes to, they do the same thing with native people. This is why I'm like, uh, you don't understand, you know, um, the, well, these non-native people here in the U.S. So they're kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think what you just said earlier, I think there's definitely a sense of um, kind of super, imply sense of superiority yeah. you know in the, in the american way you know like this is it's my way the american way or the highway right like this is we the u.s way represents a universal value no it doesn't you know like people have different way of living their life i mean for for mil for thousands of years people all over the world have lived like very vastly different yeah. lives you know like it's just different <laughs> I, no, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you have any questions, Anon, or any more comments? Um, yeah. I just think, you know, I think it's really important for people in the U.S. and for any sort of like non-Chinese person or people who might not be so 
familiar with Chinese history or like the, the history of Hong Kong to just kind of like maybe step back for a bit before necessarily like radically engaging with pro protests or anti protests or whatever, um, or anti Chinese sentiments and just kind of really think about, you know, the systems that we live in and the historical context of colonization. And I think there's a lot of different parallels within that, um, kind of like with what a lot of people here in the U.S. are facing. And I think it really speaks to the global phenomenon of ongoing colonization and how it hasn't stopped. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's actually increasing uh, because of ignorance, because, you know, uh, we're not being taught this kind of history. We're not being taught how to critically engage with this kind of thing. But also, you know, U.S. hegemony and the forceful push of U.S. culture um, onto other places around the world, um, like yes. like Latin America. You know, it's not just China, but yep. Latin America, yep. um, Africa as well. Like, you know, it's just just questioning that I think is really important. Yep. And what I mean, are the America motives? America was founded as a, as a white colonial yeah. settler society. Right. <laughs> I mean, this, that's yeah. a very foundation of America. Yes. It's, it's a, within and without, within both within America and without America, it behaves that same way. Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. To Still white colonial. Who mm -hmm. considers different. <laughs> And it becomes the it becomes the narrative of American exceptionalism, which equals that it's my way or the highway, and then that gets pushed through, right, through policy, through food, through agriculture, through all sorts of things um, that gets pushed and forced onto a lot of people around the world. And it's like it's it's kind of your options are acquiesce and assimilate, um, or we'll fight yeah. you, you know, or we'll bring you down in some other way. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. not to be little, <laughs> yeah, not, not to yeah. belittle the protesters, you know, because I think, you know, a lot of them are, they have really good grievances, right? Like they have really yep. good reasons for why they're protesting. And so not to say that they're, they're dumb or like they, they shouldn't be protesting or whatever, but it's, it, you know, and I can't speak for them cause I'm not Chinese and I'm not from Hong Kong. So I'm just speaking from an outside perspective of what I see, but I think it's important for the world to kind of just think about it and ask questions, right? And kind of yes. get to the deeper issues and kind of come up with solutions that are more, in this case, more youth-based, you know, like more about building community. And that's something that Hong Kong itself needs to work on, you know, and how can we support that effort um, instead of vilifying China or vilifying Hong Kong or vilifying yep. youth. Um, so, yeah. Yep. You know, there's one thing I my told. one thing my stepdad told me was always like, listen to your elders, you know, and um, <laughs> I really do think these protesters yeah. need to stop listening to U.S. government. And start, <laughs> start listening to their elders. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I want to thank you, Carl, for coming on. I actually hope you come on again, talk about other historical Chinese um, topics in the future. Um, but if you have any comments or, or questions. Carl? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for people who are interested, uh, I am on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is just my name, Carl Za. Carl spelled with a C, C-A-R-L. And my last name, Z-H-A. That's Zebra Henry Apple. Um, Carl Za. Uh, and, and you can also find me on Facebook under the same name. 
And uh, if you are interested in my podcast, which is about everything China, just Google search the Silk and Steel podcast. Silk and Steel podcast. And uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you again for inviting thank you. me to your thank show. Thank you.